rambling on. Let's pray. Jesus, speak to us now. Pour your Spirit out on us. Fill us with joy as we uh, think about life with you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, Here's the thing about Christianity. I don't know if you've thought this before, but at its heart, Christianity is a religion that demands to be shared with others, doesn't it? It demands sharing. It's not something you can keep to yourself. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and I took some sparkling water, and actually in the evening I took a bottle of Coke, and I uh, shook that up, and I said, this is, this is what you take, you know, a bottle of Coke, and you shake it up, you shake it up. When the Holy Spirit gets inside of us, and, and, and the love of Jesus gets inside of us, it kind of has to, we're compelled by the love of God, it has to kind of burst out and be a blessing to others, Right? Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why this is so important, um, why this is so, because if it's true, and, and there's an if, so I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey this morning, and you know, we really are a place where everybody uh, can come and journey at their own pace and time into this truth, but if it is true, if, if there is a God who loves us, And if this God has come and lived and died and risen again to defeat suffering and injustice and death for us, and if this God says, I'm going to make everything right in the world, and if this God opens up his heart and his life to us and says, won't you come into a relationship of intimacy and trust with me? That's the best news in the world, isn't it? And that's just amazing. And isn't it true that we know if Christianity is true, that it offers a fulfillment and a joy that nothing else in this world can provide. Uh, That it's, there's a a depth to it, a life, that, that to hold onto it for ourselves would actually be an act of selfishness, wouldn't it? (laughs) I think. But of course, I can, we can say all of that, and at one level, look, you know, um, you'd go, well, Mark, yeah, you're paid to say that, right? You're professionally religious and you're a motivational speaker here on a Sunday morning and I'm telling you all to go out and, you know, sell the product, as it were. And, um, and all that might be true, but it's, don't you still find it hard to talk to people about Jesus and about spiritual things? I mean, I do. It's costly, it's hard. And, and I think um, sometimes we can... We can get to the place where we think, oh, well, you know, like stories that we read about in the Bible this morning from Philip, you know, preaching in Samaria and to the eunuch, and that happened back then and there, but God doesn't work like that today. Or we can do it more subtly. We can go, well, yeah, I know God changed my life. And he did. Like, I mean, God's, I can pass the mic around. God has changed our lives in all kinds of ways. But we sort of start to believe that, well, uh, it was true for me, but God's gone out of the business of changing people's lives because they're just just disinterested, aren't they? I mean, who needs Jesus when you've got a harbor view? Yeah? Who needs Jesus when you can have amazing overseas holidays? Who needs Jesus when you can binge watch Netflix, right? So we just go, everyone's got everything together and we can think everyone else's, their lives are all sorted out and, you know, it's just me and Jesus and... But listen, no, no, no. I want to say to you this morning, as we look at this passage uh, from uh, Acts 8, we see two, two remarkable stories of Philip 
telling people the good news of Jesus, and we can learn some amazing stuff there that is going to change our lives. And I hope it's going to be a blessing to the rest of the city as we think about it. So we're going to look at this, and um, uh, just as we do that, I'm going to... uh, Let's think about this. So the first thing we're going to see is... Uh, that I need just a couple of notes, which I left down here. Um, I left somewhere. Oh, there we go. So, uh, first thing we see is that, that telling others about Jesus in both these stories requires bold obedience. Um, Bold obedience, as Russell mentioned in his prayers, for Philip to go to the Samaritans was uh, extraordinary, right? Um, the, The early church had come to believe in Jesus as Israel's Messiah. In Jerusalem, thousands were coming to faith. It was just an amazing experience. But God had said right at the right at the get-go when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, I want you to I don't want I don't want Christianity to be a like a racist religion. Right? It's not just for the Jews. I want you to tell people about Jesus here in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the church now is starting to go out to the world because persecution has come upon them in Jerusalem. So they're they're spreading. And Philip goes to Samaria. You know, well, big deal. No, really big deal. I don't know in your cultural background, I don't know what your ethnic background is, but if you think back into your cultural background, is there any tribe or people group or type who your tribe just despised and looked down on as sort of subhuman? Maybe, you, maybe you're a, an Irish Catholic background and your family thought Protestant Catholics were just, you know subhuman. Maybe, you know, you're an Anglo-Australian and you thought indigenous Australians weren't really fully human and, you know, just a second type order of being. Maybe you're, uh, I don't know, ethnic Han Chinese and, and there's a racist essentialism that thinks the, 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 the Uyghurs and the northern Chinese who aren't Han are, are, are not fully human. You know? maybe, maybe your background's German and you, you know, or Austro-Hungarian, and you think that Jewish people, you're in your family, they thought Jewish people weren't quite human. Every, throughout history, every culture tends to have a, a group of people that it's, where it's okay to look down on them. For the Jews, uh, they could look down on Samaritans. Samaritans were like the worst of the worst. A uh, bit of history, uh, 900 years or so before this story, uh, there used to be 12 tribes of Israel. You've all heard of the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? But they split, and the 10 northern tribes split from the two southern tribes uh, about 1,000 years, 900 years before this story. The Samaritans were part of the 10 northern tribes, and, and the Jews that we read about in the, in the New Testament here were part of the remaining two southern tribes centered around Jerusalem. So they split. There was a, like a 900-year split. Made worse in 722 BC when the northern tribes were taken off into exile. And they then came back slowly. But as they came back to the land, they brought all kinds of foreign religious practices, foreign women, foreign men, foreign, for all kinds of things. And they intermarried. And, uh, and so the Jews were kind of the, the religious purists and the ethnic purists. 
and the Samaritans were this complete mixed bunch. And it, it got worse uh, about 350 years before this story when the Samaritans went, okay, you know, you guys down south, you've got the temple in Jerusalem. We'll build our own temple at Mount Gerizim. So they built their own temple and they had their own religion and they disregarded most of the, the scriptures of the Jews. So as a Jew, you were brought up to see the Samaritans as these untouchable, fatally compromised close cousins that you had nothing to do with, right? In fact, if you had to go, if you had to go to a distant to a destination on the other side of Samaria, a Jew would go to great lengths to never walk through Samaria, but they'd, they'd walk days to get around Samaria so they didn't ever have to go in. And so here's Philip. Where does he go? Does he go to a place of comfort? Let me go find the rich Jews of the diaspora. Let me go find people like me. He says, no, he goes to the Samaritans, the despised, the crazy, compromised cousins. And he preaches the gospel in bold obedience. Because you can imagine the cost to him was, uh, was probably not just, not just what other Jews would think, but other, other new Christian believers would go, hang on, you, you, can't, you can't go to the Samaritans, dude. Like, we're having enough trouble with the Jewish authorities as it is. Don't go to them. And the battle with his own prejudice, right? Which is, that's huge. Like to say, no, no, if Jesus is who he said he is, then, then the love of God transcends any personal, racial, cultural, prejudice, or stereotype. It's amazing. It's obedience. It's obedience to the call of Jesus, to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Um, I, this is tremendously, I don't know if you've ever, I find it so challenging. Um, so my background's Jewish, many of you know that. And uh, I lived in, there, there probably wasn't a, a week in my life growing up where the shadow of the Holocaust, the Shoah, and what it had done for my family didn't live over me. So I grew up, to be perfectly honest, with just a fairly substantial, unrecognized prejudice uh, against Germans and, and Afrikaans, South Africans, who supported Nazi Germany and supported Germany in the First World War and the Second World War. And so for me, when I became a follower of Jesus, I've had a couple of key moments in life where I've come right up close against Germans. And not just any Germans. There was a, a young German walked into our church in uh, Melbourne years ago. And if you wanted a pin-up boy for the Nazi party, he would be it. Tall, blonde, Aryan, like just had it all, wealthy family. And I was chatting to him and we were talking. And, uh, you know, I made a crack about Nazis. And uh, as you do... Um, his grandparents were wealthy industrialists who were key members of the Nazi party, really senior Nazis. And we got talking, and God just said to me, God, God used, and we, he then joined our church, and he talked to me about the pain that that had caused his family through the last two generations, and the spiritual battles, the evil of, of Nazi uh, ideology and theology and practice. And I tell you what, God was saying to me as I stood there saying, Mark, you've got to love this guy. His grandparents try to kill your grandparents. But Jesus is the same Lord of both you and them. And it was incredibly 
confronting, but healing. When, because God is a God who is not a racist. The good news of Jesus is for everyone, right? Not just those like us. It's a wonderful truth. God loves everyone, right? So, but it takes obedience because we, it takes obedience also not just going to the Samaritans, but then also when he went to go and speak to Philip, the eunuch, because things were going really well in Samaria, weren't they? If you read this, like, mate, it was a church was booming. He was about to go on the conference speaking circuit. His, he has hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers because of all his success. He was being invited to speak at places. And everyone's like, man, Philip, he's made it. He's made it. Such success. And then God says to him, uh, you know, buddy, go down to Gaza. I've got an appointment for you with one man. But Lord, things are going so well here. Why should I go there? And when you read the story, the Holy Spirit is explicit, so clear to Philip. And hey, isn't that a challenge for you and for me as well? Like, Lord, I, I know how my, I've, you've got, I've obeyed you to this point. Things are going well now. So Lord, it just seems really good to me that I should keep doing this. And then the Holy Spirit says to you and to me, hang on, maybe I've got another plan. And, and we look at it on a, with eyes of you know, the world and we go, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm smashing it here in Samaria, Lord. This job's going incredibly well. This business is flourishing. You know, and then God says, no, I've got a plan for you. Go, and go to the one. So Philip did. Bold obedience. And I wonder for us, I wonder for me, how we become a people who have that same bold obedience to the heart of God to the direction of the Holy Spirit, to overcome ethnic and racial and personal stereotypes and prejudices, go to, the, go to our enemies, but then also the bold obedience sometimes to leave what might look like a very successful space and place in our lives to follow him to the one, because <laughs> the one is as valuable to God as the many. I mean, that's the, that's, I, I wonder, hey? Actually, and there's a subtext under there. I wonder how good are you and I at actually hearing the Holy Spirit give us those kinds of instructions. But that's the topic for another whole sermon series. Uh, how do we actually hear God in the moment? Take a detour for the one. So he has this bold obedience, which, which we need to have. Uh, but then as he goes, and what's fascinating in this is he actually preaches the same message to both, doesn't he? Uh, have a look at the stories, and you'll see, say, um, you know, in verse 12 and in verse 35, uh, you see that it's the same message. Vastly different people, but the same message. The message doesn't change, but the people he's talking to change. The gospel is the same. Isn't this amazing? Like, you can, I don't know if you've I, looking out, actually, a lot of you have traveled quite a bit, right? <laughs> One of the amazing things is when, if you travel, when you travel, when you go to visit churches in other parts of the world, like I'm just looking at Michelle, back in Uganda, you go to a Ugandan church, and you go, uh, or a Zambian church, or you go to the Philippines, or you go to India, or you go to Japan, and you go to church, and guess what? It's the same message. And you go, I might not understand a whole lot of it, but, you know, Jesus will pop up every now and again and you go, yeah, it's the same. The message doesn't change, which is awesome. Even though he's 
talking to two vastly different audiences. So what actually changes is not the message, but the way in which he communicates it. So the Sumerians, he's like a proto-Billy Graham. It's mass evangelism. And he goes to them, and he starts with where they are. They, had, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. They had a crazy view of Messiah, going to be like Moses. But he goes to them, and he starts with where they are. With Philip, what does he do? Well, he follows the Holy Spirit, and he gets alongside Philip, and he listens to where Philip is at. He starts with where Philip is at, and he sits down, and he does a one-on-one Bible study with Philip. Different contexts, different people, vastly different people. Philip was what would probably be a northern Sudanese today, the place of northern Sudan. He was a wealthy government official, probably the finance minister, the treasurer. He was a eunuch, um, and uh, he, was a, he was a Jew. He'd, either conver- he'd probably converted to Judaism, or he was part of the Jewish uh, dispersion, and he'd grown up Jewish. He'd just been to Jerusalem to worship. And uh, the Samaritans, as we've already seen, were, were ratbag outcast cousins, vastly different, vastly different, same message. So what, he, what, what that says to me is really interesting, right? Uh, as Christians, we, we need to embrace what is called uh, receptor-oriented communication. Okay, if you've ever done any communication theory... Uh, You can have sender-oriented communication or receptor-oriented communication. Sender-oriented communication privileges and prioritizes the person who's who's proclaiming the message, their interests, they set the agenda. Receptor-oriented communication says what really matters is to start with where your audience is at. How do they make meaning of the message? How do you listen to them? How do you show them respect? How do you take the one unchanging message and target it, or not target it, connect it with the lived experience of the person you're talking to so that they can hear it, right? It's the same message. Now, here's the challenge in the church, right? For us, those of us who are religious, uh, we get so used to talking to ourselves that we forget that, that we've got to actually not just be oriented around our message, what makes sense to us, we've actually got to go to people and get alongside of them and listen to them and start with their concerns, their questions, their struggles, and bring the one unchanging message to them, right? See, that's one of the challenges in the church is uh, our strategy for quite some time, probably, well, really since the Reformation, when we were, the, the Anglican church was the established church, is we kind of think, listen, if, um, if I set up a shingle and I build a lovely building and I gather some people together, then, then people can come to God when they come to us, right? Now, I'm glad you're all here, and some of you may be on a spiritual journey and you're coming here to find out about God, and that's a, that's a brilliant thing to do. Uh, but there's a step that has to happen before that, before we all gather and have our big thing, and what's the first step that has to happen? Is, well, we have to move towards people in humility and respect and love in our workplaces, in our homes, in our communities. Uh, we, we can't say to the world, well, if you want to connect with God, that's going to happen Sunday mornings, 10 till 11.15 in Roselle, and you've got to be, you know, a pretty well-educated white person living in the inner west of Sydney to really connect with God 
and, and don't come in too messy and don't be too stuffed up and don't be too broken. But, but if you've got all your stuff together, you come in on our terms, fit in with our culture, then you can connect with God. And listen, that does work. It does, but, but there's a prior step. It only works for very small people. The prior step is each of us has to go and love and serve the people around us. Because think about it for a moment. Isn't that, isn't that how God treats us? You know, like, what did God do? God sitting up there in heaven going, well, Mark, buddy, I want to love you. I want to connect with you. Here's the plan. You work your, you, you get your, you get religion, you get morality, you sort yourself out, and you come to me on my terms. And Mark, when you've got everything sorted out, you come to me, then we can have a relationship. That's not how God treats us, right? The whole beauty, wonder, and extraordinary message of Christianity is God says, I will leave my eternal place of beauty and glory and truth, and I will come into the messiness of this world, and I'll come for you. I won't wait for you to get religion. I won't wait for you. I will come to you. God's communicative strategy is the ultimate example of receptor-oriented communication says, I value you. God says, I'll do whatever, to the point where he actually changes the nature of his being. He takes on flesh. So God then says to you and to me, you know, go to your workplace. Go to your friends. Go bear witness. Go introduce them to Jesus, right? It takes obedience. It takes courage takes deep humility and respect because you want to listen to them and love them and be alongside of them. And then you've got to tell them, you've got to bring them to a point where in answering their questions about life, you can point them to the God who loves them. And when we do that, guess what happens? Both Samaritan and eunuch alike show the same response. In verse 12, again, and then 30, verse 36. And what is the response? The response is to believe and be baptized. <laughs> this is what God does. He changes their hearts so that they believe the message. And then baptism is a sign of complete identification with Jesus. They go, yeah, I'm in. I'm all in. Literally, all in. All in. Completely identifying with Jesus, right? So here's the thing. There's two things that occur to me. One is, um, make sure this morning that like the Samaritans and like the eunuch, you have made this kind of personal response to Jesus, right? Have you, have you got to a point in your life where you've stopped and you've gone, I believe Jesus is who he said he is, and I will, tr I will trust him as as the Lord and as the King of my life, and I will identify with Him and I will follow Him. Have you asked? So when I was a teenager and on this journey myself, from my weird uh, religious background, I remember in the youth group where I, was, I started to attend, and they started to say to me weird things like, Mark, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. And then, Mark, you need to be born again. And I'm like, that's just weird. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it means, as I understood it, it means to stop and repent, to turn from living my life my own way, open my heart to God and say, Jesus, come in, just, just come and fill me. Take control, take over my life. I want to live for you. 
I want you to be in control. I want you to call the shots. I want to trust you to wipe the slate clean and give me a hope and a future and a destiny and a purpose. So this morning, uh, is that true of you? Have you made that decision? Have you got to a point in your life where you've, you've, you've thrown open your heart and your life to Jesus and you've said, come in. I repent. I, I change my mind about everything else that's driven me and now I want to live for you, Jesus. Because it's easy to just come and hang around and that's good and we love it. But, but there comes a decision time. There comes the Jesus moment, right? Is this it for you? Don't leave this morning until you're sure that you've You've come to that decision point and you've gone, yep, like the Samaritans, like the eunuch, you've, you've embraced Jesus. But the, the final thing then, the, the second point for us is um, we need to trust that people will make that response. God is still in the business of changing lives. So don't shy away from, from asking people to, to cross the line, right? You've got to... I don't want to use crass sales terminology. You've you got to close the deal. You've got to actually say to folk, come on, enough, enough sort of, you know what the kids, I don't know, if, you, if you've got teenagers, you might be aware of this phrase. When two teenagers these days are checking each other out, the pre-dating phase is called tuning each other. Do you know that? Have you heard that? Okay. So those of you, yeah, you're tuning. So kids tune each other, which is like the pre-dating, checking each other out. Ooh kind of, uh, I said to my kids, so what is, what's tuning mean? Like, are you actually kissing? Like, what's actually going on there? And they were like, well, you know, it, it depends, you know. You might have hooked up at a party once, and now you're just checking out whether, you know. So I think sometimes a lot of people spend a lot of time tuning God. <laughs> and then you got to come and say, hey, listen, it's It's time. You can't sit on the fence. You've got to commit, right? You've got to... Because Christianity only really works when you're all in, right? It only works when you're all in. It's a bit like marriage. It only really works when you're all in. And it's absolutely like pregnancy. You're either... It's very binary, right? You're, you either are or you aren't. It's a, it's, it's a whole lot like that. So the same response. And then the fourth thing is you, you might be sitting here and you go, ah... One of the problems I have with telling people about Jesus, doing all of this, is I just, I'm just scared of being seen as arrogant or judgmental or a fundamentalist or manipulative or into some sort of spiritual multi-level marketing. You know, you sell essential oils, I sell Jesus. It's all really the same, right? I, I don't want to be that. I don't want you to be that. And people re react against it. So why? So, so why? Why is it so important that we, we do this? Why is it so important we say yes to Jesus and we help other people? Well, because you know what? There's the same result in both the Samaritans and the, uh, and the eunuch. And what is it? What's the result of all of this? What happens in the Samaritans' lives? What's that? The result is this. There was great joy in that city. Good. Great joy. That's the motivation that we become people who bring joy to others because we help them connect with God, find forgiveness, 
meaning, purpose, life, a destiny, a community. Find great joy. And then what happens to to Philip? Uh, The Spirit of the Lord took Philip away, and the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way doing what? Our motivation, because I think it's God's, is to just bring joy to people, joy to the world. So I have a couple of thoughts about that, as you imagine I would. One is, I reckon, the thought that goes into my mind is, if Christianity is true, and if our job is to bring joy to others, Why, oh why, are so many Christians so miserable? I'm like, I don't get it. I just don't, except I think we are miserable as Christians in a place like Australia because we're a subcategory of the wealthiest, richest culture that's ever lived, but I think also one of the most miserable cultures. I think we live in a culture with a, where our great idol, our great God is wellness and personal peace and comfort. And with all our incredible technological innovations and our wealth and our affluence and our medicine, we believe that life is fundamentally about giving us personal peace and affluence and comfort. And, and, and so then what happens is we take everything for granted and any little thing that undermines that becomes, makes us miserable. Any setback, any pain, any illness, any disappointment. And, and so you get this culture of, across our whole society of anxiety and sadness and depression and misery and complaining and grumbling, even though objectively we have no reason at all ever to be miserable. We're the happiest, healthiest, richest, longest living cohort of humans that have ever existed, but we're also a cohort where anxiety and depression uh, is, is, is being evidenced in ways we haven't seen before. And, and that comes into the church. And we are miserable. And I go, listen, if Christianity so is true, we should be the most joyful of all people, and we should be people who bring the greatest joy to others. So I think one of the most significant spiritual disciplines we can engage on if we're to be useful is the discipline of becoming women and men of joy. To study how much... So how might that work? Well, every day, study how much God loves you. Look at Jesus. Study the gospel. Study the cross of Jesus Christ. Wrestle with the Bible and just look at it to say, God, show me how much you love me. Show me the truth. And don't get up off your knees until that experience of seeing the love of God and being filled with the Spirit starts to give you a heart of joy. Now, aside... I'm not saying if you're struggling with depression or mental illness now that that there's something wrong or bad spiritually with you because I know many of us battle many demons, right? I get that. But even in the midst of our battles, the discipline of saying, I will find joy in Jesus, in the love of God for me is huge, right? And that that should infect us. I really believe that. I go, people should come into this community and go, there is a joy here that is inexplicable in a worldly sense. And then, you know what? 
when we tell other people about Jesus, it just causes an explosion of joy in their lives. So let me ask us, this as a church, if we, can it be said truly of us that the city of Sydney, the inner west, the Balmain Peninsula, wherever you want to draw the boundaries, is full of joy because we're in it? I think, it, I think there's a sense in which this is absolutely right. You look at the hospitals we've set up historically, places like Anglicare and Mission Australia and all the Christian organizations and all the good benefits of our cultural work, the justice system we have. Culturally, yes, we've created this, the context for much joy in the city. But I think actually people have lost, or, or in their experience, they, they take all that for granted, and what they've lost is connection with the ultimate source of all that joy which is living relationship with Jesus. So you can have your hospitals and your healthcare and your education, which is amazing. But you know what? If, if, you, if you're living a Christless life, it's ultimately empty, right? And the joy won't last. So how do we as a community be full of joy ourselves and then bring others the great news of Jesus so we multiply joy in the city, in your workplace, amongst your enemies, people who hate you at work, people you find so difficult to get along with. Bring them the good news of Jesus so that they become transformed and happy, full of joy, and so are we. So that's the plan. That's the challenge, hey? It's not that hard. It's, mm. it's not a rebuke. It's okay. It's, it's a, this is a wonderful adventure we're on, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah? Mm. You're all thinking about how miserable you are. <laughs> no, I'm sure you're not. It's just God is wonderful and he loves us. So let's pray and just open ourselves up to Jesus afresh this morning and to his love in our lives that will fill us with joy. Lord Jesus, uh, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Wherever we are on our journey, help us to, to, to just be open to you come into our lives afresh, Jesus. Fill us. Pour your love into our hearts. And then, Jesus, send us out into this world to go and be agents of joy, joy bringers, as we love and serve people and introduce them to this wonderful Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.